I'm telling you, it's changed the way I deal with really pissed off family members, pissed off patients. Five of her said, I am done. Good night. We'll talk later. I was trying to find a place where I could fly as a doctor. I only found three places in the U.S. that did that. The way I found it was I Googled it. <laughs> Welcome to another episode in the Thinking Series from Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is a format I've been enjoying where I talk with some of the sharpest minds in emergency medicine about how they think through chief complaints. In this episode, one of the country's few flight doctors, Dr. Cynthia Griffin, shares how she sorts through patients with the chief complaint of agitation. She works both in hospital and out of hospital, so her perspective is truly unique. What you will quickly hear is that she is relatable and smart and happy to share what she knows with medics because she was one for many years before becoming an emergency medicine doctor. She makes a point to describe how she actually leans into the patients who are the most salty because she knows, like all of us, we can be biased when confronted with the agitated patient. The Thinking series is off to a great start with the chest pain episode being one of the most listened to episodes to date, and educators are sharing with me how they're using the series with their learners. So for this one, I made the first ever Medic Mindset Play With The Concepts activity. You can find it at medicmindset.com under the show notes for thinking about agitation. There are questions to get you tinkering with the concepts mentioned in the episode. I hope you'll share it with learners. But for now, let's hear what Dr. Griffin has to say about agitation. We start by discussing an excellent talk by Ruben Strayer that is linked to in the show notes. And Ruben Strayer, in, it's a video I sent you, and you'd probably already seen it. It was a smack talk, I think. He talked about undifferentiated agitation. He talked about three types of emergency department patients that are agitated. One type was agitated but cooperative. He likened that to like mild dementia or an intoxicated teenager. Like they will respond to your kindness. You can get them to settle down. They're consolable. And then he talks about disruptive without danger. I'm thinking that means pulling out IVs or getting up out of the bed or wandering around, but not dangerous to you. And then the third type was the excited delirium, the thrashing, the incoherent. It's interesting because you, we have to elaborate further. It's to just say agitated. You kind of need more info, you know? Where are they on that spectrum? Yeah, it's like a blanket term. So let's suppose that you're flying to a scene call. The ground crew is there, and they say to you that the patient's agitated. What are you and your partner talking through? What are you starting to mentally prepare for? If I'm flying somewhere, especially to a scene, the first thing I'm thinking of is that this patient, if they're agitated, they're starting to go into shock. Because the first thing that goes is your mental status. And they're going to start to act differently. And they're not going to be acting like a normal human being would when someone else goes, hey, I'm here to help you. And I've been humbled so many times, even in the ED with prisoners, drunk patients who are just, oh, they're like, they're pulling at my strings. They're making me so mad. And then I find out that like, oh, man, this person has a liver laceration or a spleen lack or they're bleeding internally. And then I'm like, oh, no wonder they were acting that way. So whenever I feel like my patient's making me agitated, I take a step back and I'm like, all right, what could be going on medically? I'm thinking trauma, I'm thinking pain, hypotension is a big one based off whatever mechanism they have. Okay, if this is a car accident, we're already getting blood and fluids ready. If this is, I don't know, if it's a fall, 
especially like elderly, I'm thinking maybe this is like a head injury or a head bleed, and that's why they're agitated. With med flight, whenever I fly, when I hear agitated, I suddenly think, okay, trauma, probably hypotension, something bad going on. But when I hear it in the ER, I think, okay, they're pissed off. They've been waiting a long time. And I know that they've had to wait an hour, an hour and a half. It's when I have to put on my, like, my smiley face and my, oh, I'm so sorry, and figure out why they're upset and figure out, is this because of their illness? Is this what brought them here? Or are they mad because of the wait and because they're in the ER? And I want to go back real quick to something you said. You said if you notice if they are making you agitated, like you're realizing you're getting angry, that that's like a red flag for you to say, oh, wait, hang on, check yourself. Oh, yeah, because you start to automatically get biased. Well, in the ED, my thought is, okay, I don't want to be in this room very long. I don't want to talk to this person that much longer. I want to get away from them or their family. That's my trigger to tell me, okay, you need to figure out what's going on because you're getting a little bit angry or anxious and there's something going on that I'm about to miss because I'm already like feeling that bias. There's that bias too with the staff. Because this person smells like alcohol. They've been here every day for the past five days. And so I have to like always put myself in check. This is going to humble me somehow. There's going to be something I'm going to miss. So I try to be extra careful with those patients. That's wise. Imagine you're going to the scene call and it's not trauma. It's medical. How does hearing a different age, does it send you down different paths? If I say a 25-year-old that's agitated... Do you tie a certain story to the typical 25-year-old agitated patient versus the 85-year-old? I'd like to say that I don't, but I totally do. (laughs) 25-year-old, the first thing I think of is, well, if I'm flying there, I'm going to think trauma first. But you're right. You said maybe medical. So then I'll think um, 25-year-old male. I usually think drugs. Drugs or alcohol or medications. If it's a female, I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, pregnancy, trafficking, and drugs. Trafficking. Why? I've had a couple trafficked patients, I guess is the way to put it. It's one of those things I'll never forget about. Once you see it and once you you find out that someone's in that situation and you're like, oh man, if if I hadn't asked that one question, like this person would still be stuck in the situation that they're in. And so whenever anyone's acting weird or doesn't make sense, their reasoning doesn't make sense, I had a patient once who said she got like kicked in the stomach and she started having vaginal bleeding. And I thought, okay, those don't really kind of go together. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. And like, she couldn't remember what happened the night before. And I just asked the simple question of, you know, can you come and go of your own free will? That's all I said. And I kind of always say that blanketly. And like, and she said, no. And I kind of looked at her and I said, well, do you need help? And she said, yes. When the story just doesn't make sense, It's not always that that they're off, that something's wrong with them. It's that they can't say what they need to say. So I just always think trafficking in the back of my mind. And what is the sentence of the question again that you ask, the blanket one? I say, can you come and go of your own free will? That's a smart one. Where'd you get that? I learned that in residency, actually, in Virginia at VCU. We had a a long talk about trafficking. And I thought, oh, I, I don't think I'll ever see this. And I've seen it more than I expected. It's a good screening question for... Other populations too, geriatrics, or just like anybody that might be dependent on someone else. And when you mention like the the older person, right? So the 85-year-old, I usually think stroke first. Stroke pops in my head, along with hypoglycemia, by the way, for all of these. But usually stroke, change in medicines, head bleed, and then abuse for elderly. Agitation is not 
a chief complaint that I have a really good mental model for. So what do you think about when you hear altered mental status, though? Do you have a flow for that? Yeah, I do. I feel like that's what I use for agitation. Very often because you can't get a lot of history from them. I I do a lot of physical exam, getting the story from bystanders and starting with the worst first. Starting with, um, like you were saying, hypoperfusion or hypotension, you know, and cardiac. And then once you know they're not hypoxic and they're not hypotensive, then you can consider other body systems like neuro and uh, endocrine. And so I take a body system, body systems approach. I mean, that's the same thing I do. The hypotension is number one, hypoglycemia, because you can only be made a fool of so many times before you forget about that one. I know I keep saying that, but man, I still remember at least the five times where I was like, can I, can you get me a blood sugar? And then that alcohol patient in room seven, their blood sugar is 27. And you're like, oh, have you seen unilateral neurodeficits with just hypoglycemia before? Yes. I have seen some crazy stuff with hypoglycemia. I have seen everything from obtunded to chatty and weird. My leg won't move to unresponsive to not breathing to seizing. So when you think of agitation worst first, what are the worst things you think of? You said hypotension, hypoxia, hypoglycemia. I think head injury. Like some kind of head bleed? Is it like an old person who's on blood thinners? I think medication changes, the polypharmacy that we see. And when I work in the ED, I see an elderly population. So a lot of that pops into my head first. Those are the big ones. Oh, it's sepsis. Sepsis can fool you, man. If it's like an alcoholic patient, a lot of those you don't undress all the way because they're agitated, right? And so then you miss... You miss this big abscess or you miss their rash or you miss their cellulitis. And then you get smacked upside the head with sepsis. I have the luxury of having labs to cue me into a lot of things that I've missed. Oh, there's a ridiculous procalcitonin or white count or lactic acid. And that's why I love doing these episodes with you guys because I wouldn't think of sepsis. Ruben Strayer said the same thing in that talk. He listed sepsis as a cause of agitation or even excited delirium. And I thought, really? Like, I just haven't seen that yet. It's interesting that you mention excited delirium because I almost think of that as something a little bit different. I think of excited delirium as the umpteenth step of agitation. Yelling, screaming, fighting, spitting, can't settle them down. And that's when I think, okay, this person's going to have something bad. They're going to die because you're at a higher risk of that once you've gotten to that level. And then I always think, oh, there's some kind of cocaine, sympathomimetic. We got to be really careful and basically take control before this person makes themselves code or hurts staff. Hurts me, you know? I saw that guy once and he did hurt people and he did code. This was a call that I ran. It was, to me, the most combative a patient could possibly be. He bit three police officers. They had maced him. They had, I mean, they were laying on top of him. We suspected he was probably on PCP because they just could not get him wrangled. I never figured out, Cynthia, it's it's embarrassing, but I never really figured out how to get in there to give him an IM injection of something, if it would have even helped. But they were just wrestling. Like, it was literally, <laughs> if you can just imagine, like a dust ball on the ground, right? Like, it was just a struggle the full time. If you had been there with me that day, right? You're my training officer. Do you stand back? Do you try to get in there? That's a tough one because you got to look out for number one, right? I've been very fortunate that I'm usually not the person to give the medicine because I fly with a nurse and they usually give the meds. And then when I work in the ED, they give the meds. Really the safest thing for that patient is to get them sedated. I've had a lot of good nurses that I've watched and how they do this. And it's usually... 
telling the officer or the security guard, the big ones, hey, this is where I'm going for. I'm going for the side of the thigh. Don't worry about moving clothes. None of that stuff. I'm going to go for this I am shot. It's going to be with this needle. Hold down however you can so I can get to the leg. Protect me on my way there. It's the team takedown. Pre-hospital medicine is unique in that we only get our patients one at a time. That usually means if somebody's what Ruben Strayer calls if they're agitated but cooperative, meaning like if we can just keep redirecting them and just telling them like, nope, don't touch that EKG line or don't touch that IV. If you can just kind of keep redirecting them, we can usually keep them pretty chilled out. It's in the hospital that they can't be at their bedside constantly. They often end up sedating people that we might not have to, except in particular with the helicopter you have to be able to trust that that person is going to stay as consolable as they are on scene throughout your whole flight. I guess the question is, what's your threshold there? How do you decide to sedate someone that's like, okay, you're sitting there with them. They're kind of being consolable, but you're not sure if it's going to stay that way. Can you talk at all about the conversations you've had with colleagues or with yourself about, am I going to pull the trigger or not? So if I'm on the fence, I definitely talk to my partner. I think either way, I'm going to talk to my partner. Because we're both going to be up in the air in that tight little spot in the aircraft. I have a very, how do I put it, a low trigger to sedate somebody in that aircraft because of safety. Have you ever heard of the word gestalt? It's kind of like following your gut. I read a long time ago that your, your gut instinct is your subconscious telling you clues about what's going on that you don't realize. That you don't notice consciously, but your brain does. And I always follow my gut. Always. If I just get that weird feeling like this person's not going to be safe in the air, then I don't want to fly them or I sedate and paralyze. And I've actually, I've had patients who have only sedated and I've been okay giving them like Versed. And then I've had, I had a prisoner once who got rowdy in the air and I had given him a bunch of ketamine. I don't honestly don't remember how much. I think I just given him like two per kilo IV because he had an IV in. And I remember flying and all of a sudden his knee started to kick up and we were just in like a little EC-135. And I don't know if he was coming out of the ketamine or there just wasn't enough. I was like too averse now. He wasn't like ferociously kicking, but like started like pushing the stuff out of the way. It just started to become dangerous because we were in the air. And I was like, two more, two more, two more. And I think we got 10 averse <laughs> And that calmed him down. That was going to be my next question is kind of what's your typical approach that the agitated or combative patient. I knew you were going to ask me this. And I told myself this last week or two that I was going to try different stuff (laughs) in the ED. And I got like tons of agitated drunk people. And I use the same thing every time. (laughs) Okay. Well, it must work. What is it? I'm a big fan of Versed. Five of Versed, I am. Done. Good night. We'll talk later. They have an IV, two of Versed. Put them on Intel, watch them. Versed is usually like the fast on, fast off. And there's even studies that support that. It usually starts calming you down in about, I think studies show 15 to 20 minutes. Although, to be honest, I think it takes five minutes. I think it's pretty quick. And then usually the person will wake up. I feel like they get more arousable about 30 minutes, but studies show like a little bit longer. They usually say an hour. And I usually want my person out quickly, do my workup, get my scans, put in the Foley, get the blood. And then I want them to wake up so I can figure out, now we can have a conversation about what's going on. Or now the flight's over. (laughs) Now the trauma team can assess you or, you know, the the ICU can assess you. So I just want them down for like that little bit of time. Ativan takes a long time to recover from and ketamine takes longer. Ketamine, though, I mean, that's going to put you down really quick, though. 
And if I know like I'm gonna DSI or RSI someone, then I'll definitely use ketamine. So common causes of agitation that aren't life-threatening. What do you think of? Psych patients who are just pissed off, I guess. Patients who are mad because they've had to wait. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, liver failure. Drunk drugs, cocaine, brain tumor, brain mass. Could be a seizure. There's those zebra things, right? Thyroid disorders. So you can get like a thyroid toxicosis. I had patients who have had syphilis. Ooh, I got a good one. I'll buy you a drink next time I see you. If you have heavy metal poisoning on your list. That wasn't on any of my list in preparing for this. How about meningitis? I actually saw it as a medic. We had a patient who was found on the ground laying prone. They wouldn't roll over. And we're like, you need to roll over so we can get you up and get you on the cot. And they were like, I have such a bad headache. My whole body hurts. And we're like, can you roll over? Can you just roll? And they wouldn't roll over. And I thought that was so weird. And so we like rolled them over and like basically had to do like a four man carry to try to get this person on the cot. And I remember in the hospital thinking like, this isn't right. This has got to be one of those weird things. And then we picked up that person again a day or two later, same presentation. I don't think I was the one that said it. I think it was one of my partners who said, maybe this is meningitis. And they didn't catch it until the third time we took that person to the hospital. And you could kind of imagine that person, the person that's got the spunkiness about him and like really doesn't want to turn over. You could almost call that agitated, you know, like they're not cooperative. There are these certain class of patients that you can de-escalate. There are a couple. I've met a few. <laughs> but for the most part, if you can't get somebody calmed down in the first one or two minutes, it seems like we don't ever get them calmed down. You should listen to this podcast, ER Cast by Rob Orman, The Angry Patient Protocol. Oh, my God. It's practice changing. And there's like four steps to it. Once you do those four steps, it like changes the whole dynamic of that angry person. So you go in and you say, hey, you look really angry or you look really upset or I can tell like this is really hard for you. Like, And then you ask them to tell you about it. So you're like, so tell me about it. And you leave it open ended. And that's when they go off on you. And they're like, I've been waiting an hour and a half. You let them go off. And then you you acknowledge that they're upset and that's a bad experience for them. And I truly, I think... I take that step back and I think, yeah, I guess I'd be pissed if that happened too. And so I usually say, I am so sorry that that's your experience. Thank you for telling me about it. I had no idea. I just saw that you were upset. I think the next step is you ask them like, well, what I do is I ask them like, well, what do you want to get out of this ED visit? What is it that you want to happen? And instead of saying like, no, I won't give you like 20 Percocet or no, I won't CT scan you. I'll say, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to X, Y, Z. There's like one more. Oh, what's the last one? The last one is just to thank them for being open. Uh, that's probably why I don't do that. <laughs> just kidding. Usually I'm like, here, have a turkey sandwich. And one of the things he mentions in there too is like when they're going off about how pissed off they are about waiting so long, you can't be like, well, I was resuscitating a kid over there. Like you can't defend yourself. You just have to let them let it out. Let them air whatever it is out. And that's hard to do, man. Upset patient protocol. I'm telling you, it's like it's changed the way I deal with really pissed off family members, pissed off patients. Sometimes they're upset and you can calm them down. But the ones that just get cranked up, it's just a lost cause. Talk to me about schizophrenia. If I know that they're schizophrenic, I'm going to stand far away. If they're avoiding eye contact, I'm going to avoid it too. If they're making eye contact, I'll make it. But usually what I'll notice, you'll be talking to that person. I document it as responding to internal stimuli. But what they're doing really is they're hallucinating and they're seeing or hearing stuff that you can see their like eyes will dart around the room. 
And I'll usually say, are you hearing something that's scaring you? You know, are you seeing something that you don't think is there? It's the elephant in the room, like acknowledge it. So the eye contact is interesting. So if they're not holding your gaze, you don't go after it. Like you just kind of avert your eyes also. Yeah. I mean, I'll try like once to take a look, but you can, I don't know. I feel like once you try once and that person doesn't want to look at you, like there's no reason to push it any further. It's just going to make them more paranoid, more scared and more like suspicious of you. You know, I just had a partner of mine last night in the ED ask me, they were like, I feel like I'm missing something. This lady's confused. And I did an LP and like we scanned her head and we got all these labs and we did a drug screen. What am I missing? And I actually have a list that reminds me of things that I might not have thought of. It's actually a mnemonic <laughs> for delirium. It's uh, I watch death. It came from like some paper back in like the 90s. Every now and then you have another doctor there working with you. And you can like bounce stuff off of them. And we usually, that happens a lot at the end of our shifts because we're so tired. We just want to leave. And so you get that bias, right? Keep talking about bias. You get that bias. Like, I just want to get out of here. And so that's when you can really miss something. And so towards the end of my shift, I'll run something by my partners or they'll run it by me. And they'll be like, hey, what am I missing? What am I missing? And I use that in the helicopter too, especially with codes and traumas. Like, what do you guys think? What am I missing? Because we're human, right? We're not going to know everything all the time. Oh my god. You're gonna be really mad. Why? This this thing stopped recording. What? I'm not mad. No, you're gonna be mad. I'm not mad. You're mad. I'm not mad at all. I think it did. No, maybe it's going on a different it's still going. <laughs> you're so crazy. I actually wasn't mad. Do you know how many little like tech hiccups I've had? Podcasting is ridiculous. Clinicians podcasting, like we have no clue what we're doing. So right now the mic is plugged into that red thing. Okay, now check your waveform. <laughs> you cracked me up. Did you hang up on me? I think you hung up on me. Every episode of the Thinking Series uses cover art from an artist from within our EMS ranks. Special thanks to Ren Keller for delighting me with the perfect photograph to capture agitation. I'll link to his Instagram account in the show notes.